Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express, too. So, if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing. Member FINRA SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com disclosures slash high-yield account. Join Bloomberg in San Francisco or virtually on May 7th for The Future Investor, Data-Powered Transformations. This 2024 event series will examine how data is not only playing a pivotal role in investment decisions, but serves as a driving force behind the construction of innovative, investable enterprises. This series is proudly sponsored by Invesco QQQ. Register at BloombergLive.com slash FutureInvestor slash radio. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week. What's the state of corporate governance? The deficit is a real issue. The U.S. economy continues to send mixed signals. The financial stories that shape our world. Fed action to calm concerns over dollar liquidity. Some encouraging China data. The 500 wealthiest people in the world. Through the eyes of the most influential voices. Larry Summers, the former Treasury Secretary. Starbucks CEO Kevin Johnson. SEC Chairman Jay Clayton. Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. When it comes to technology, it's not just social media and artificial intelligence and 5G that the United States is competing with China over. It's also energy and the race to develop new ways of generating energy, ways that go well beyond traditional fossil fuels. I talked with the U.S. Secretary of Energy, Dan Briette, about the energy race, and he said we should be concerned about the competition. The global energy landscape has changed dramatically over the last few decades. And uh, our position as the United States has changed within that landscape. You know, in that time, we've seen a dramatic shift in the flow of U.S. resources to developing economies all across the world. And I was looking at some statistics earlier today. You know, back in 1969, 70% of the monetary flows back then were categorized as official development assistance uh, by the U.S. government. And in 2005, 80% instead came from the private capital uh, market. So that's, you know, that's, that's an intense shift away uh, from government resources to the private sector. And that was 15 years ago. So I'm sure that number could be even higher than today. But it clearly in, you know, illustrates that the private sector is playing a bigger role in the inter- international arena. And uh, one component of our mission here at the Department of Energy is to reach out and engage Uh, with these increasingly important global actors. And with that in mind, uh, our department, DOE, Department of Energy, is leading some efforts to develop what we think are cutting-edge public-private partnerships, and they'll help achieve results in this very dynamic energy landscape. And uh, we're doing that with our partners within the interagency, uh, primarily uh, what's known now as the DFC, uh, the old OPEC, the old Overseas Private Investment Corporation. We've been working very closely with them. But, 
you know, we're very excited about these partnerships because they, they not only yield uh, economic growth, but they enable the U.S. to strengthen its ties to international partners and to provide new opportunities uh, all across the world for American businesses. And uh, I just talked to uh, Dr. Fatih Barol at the International Energy Agency, uh, and he tells me that 2020 is now set to see the decline in energy investment on record, uh, obviously due to the pandemic. Uh, but this is a reduction of roughly one-fifth or almost 400 billion U.S. dollars. And that's in capital spending compared to 2019 CapEx, as we, as we call it. Uh, IEA has reported on the opportunity for policy actions. Uh, and and we've, we've worked closely with them. They're targeting energy investments to boost, gro boost growth, uh, to create uh, even more jobs, and to continue reducing energy-related emissions. And uh, even more, there's real potential here to expand energy access uh, by nearly 270 million people and provide cleaner cooking solutions to nearly 420 million people all across the globe. As my predecessor, Rick Perry, Secretary Rick Perry said, you know, there's still so many people around the world without access to commercial energy, and we want to help fix that uh, problem uh, for them and create opportunities for us here in America. But, um, you know, as we know and as we've discussed in the past, governments alone don't have the resources uh, for all of those investments. So we're going we're gonna to rely upon, and it will require, you know, very strong public and private partnerships uh, based on a, what we refer to here in the United States as a bottom-up energy philosophy, uh, one that supports free markets, it funds scientific research, uh, and it honors the choice of producers and consumers alike. Um, so with our private sector counterparts, we're going to be fo focusing here on things like nuclear technologies and uh, working to develop new reactors and new fuels for those reactors, fuels that are accident tolerant and non-proliferant. Uh, we're also focusing on wind and solar technologies, uh, which is a priority uh, for our department and a large portion of our R&D budget uh, here at the Department of Energy will be spent on work that's coming out of our National Renewable Energy Laboratory uh, in Golden, Colorado. In, in that vein, we're going to be pursuing some new battery technologies. And uh, all of our innovators here uh, and entrepreneurs in the private sector, we're working lockstep on some new carbon capture utilization and storage process, uh, projects. So uh, in short, you know, the government and DOE can and we should uh, play a very crucial role in helping to bring all of these new projects over the finish line. Um, so, David, it's exciting. It's an exciting time to be in the energy business. It's an exciting time to be in energy policy. And uh, as the world changes, so will we. Mr. Secretary, that was very helpful. And it's clear you want more energy and you want it cheaper. You want more investments. And you want some private investment in particular. We've talked before, as you said, and you t tend to say it's all of the above when it comes to energy. As mm -hmm. I try to get a choice between renewables versus fossil fuels, things like that. Give us a sense of what that really means in practice. Doesn't the, the, the government have to pick some winners and losers? Well, look, winners and losers are something we avoid in the marketplace. We don't, uh, as a government, we don't want to pick individual players. Um, but as technology, uh, picking winners and losers in technology is not something that we want to engage in uh, either. Uh, what we want is to pursue, as you and I have discussed, an all-of-the-above strategy. And, uh, you know, the president has talked about this publicly, and those words mean exactly what they are. Uh, we're going to pursue renewable technologies very, very aggressively. We just announced on the West Coast a brand-new uh, facility at one of our laboratories there that's going to allow us to develop grid-scale storage, battery storage. 
this is 20 megawatts and above. It allows us to, to uh, develop the next generation of battery storage that will allow renewables to be uh, integrated into our current electric grid much more easily and much more efficiently. That was Dan Briette, U.S. Energy Secretary. Coming up, corporate America isn't just looking inward, it's also looking at the outside world to see what it can do to move us forward on the pressing issues of our time. Just ask Ed Bastian, he's CEO of Delta Airlines. That's next on Wall Street Week on Bloomberg. Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express, too. So, if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing, member FINRA SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high dash yield dash account. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. The aftermath of the killings of Breonna Taylor and George Floyd made all of us face the deep divisions in our country and the ways we've fallen short of making this a more perfect union. Ed Bastian, CEO of Delta Airlines, has been addressing what a major publicly traded company can and should do to address the need for societal change since he first took over as leader of Delta. And he was thrust into the controversial issue of gun regulation. We spoke to him at the virtual Bloomberg Equality Summit. The bottom line on this is that we have a responsibility at our company to be not just a great airline, but also a great steward of our resources and help build up our own people, opportunities for our own team, as well as within our community, where we fly and where we invest our time. Uh, and one of the things the pandemic has shown to us is the vulnerable have become even more at risk. And it's, it's led to their voices being heard. It's been an interesting phenomenon where, you know, as everything has quieted down, as the world has had to come to a stop, it's allowed us opportunity to listen to those people that are actually have been speaking to us for some time and maybe we've been too busy to listen. And I know at Delta that's been the case and we've had a renewed focus on, on racial equality, systemic bias and, and injustice and all the things that we can do as corporate leaders to make a difference in our community. Ed, in your statement, you actually referred to the need to listen, as you just said, and talked about having town hall meetings and things like that to really learn more from the people at Delta. Have you done that yet? And what have you learned? Because you knew about this issue before. What perhaps new did you find out from that? We, we have done a lot of that. We've had regular town hall meetings on, in, on large company-wide, you know, tens of thousands of people, uh, as well as on small-scale uh, matters, and we're doing it in many, many parts of our company. And you're right, David, we've been focused on diversity and inclusion for a long time, and we've got a pretty good track record. We've been making progress. But the one thing that, that I have 
paid a lot closer attention to is disaggregating the information. Diversity and inclusion is a broad umbrella. It includes gender, race, ethnicity, and, and other areas of opportunity. Uh, but when you look at the information and you see underneath the, the, the specific groups that are potentially not keeping up with the broader economy or, or corporate uh, opportunities, it's been the black community with, within at least within Delta. Uh, we've got 20% of our employees are, are black, uh, yet only 7% of the top leaders in the company are. And that's a pretty wide gap that we need to commit to close. Well, that's something that we see replicated in a lot of U.S. industry, I suspect. Certainly the industry I know about at ABC, we had those challenges. How is the African-American situation somewhat different from other people of color? I mean, there's an issue for all, but as you said, it's somewhat different, perhaps because we have 400 years of slavery, there's a history of slavery to account for. Yeah. Yeah. You know, there's this, this has been going on for not just decades, but centuries. And the thing that we've we've learned here at Delta is that we all have a role to play to to owning the issue. You know, it's one thing to say that we've got to get better. It's one thing to to acknowledge the numbers, as we said. It's it's important to be transparent about the numbers, but to really understand the reasons and the rationale and put yourself in someone else's shoes, that's where the listening and the understanding and the reflection have coming are coming from. And one of the things we've talked a lot about Delta is also being truth tellers, acknowledging the fact that our company does not have a great record on this in the past and may have some challenges it needs to correct for in order to be a more just company going forward. And while the leaders of the company may not have been here at the time, some of those inequities were first initiated, we have to go back and reconcile and make sure we understand what our company's responsibility is, not just our individual responsibilities. Part of the challenge we have for all of society, business, I think, and perhaps even the Delta is, it's not just enough to say going forward we're going to be even. We've got some history we have to make up for. How do you do that without alienating people who are not benefited by the, by the actions? Well, it's a great question, and you're right. There's a lot of people wondering, well, what about me? You know, or, or Does that mean I'm going to now be by, by uh, implication disadvantaged? relative to uh, to an African-American colleague? And the answer is no. The answer is we got to raise the bar for everybody. We There are, there are plenty of, of great, talented leaders within our African-American community that we need to invest more time and more understanding in. And when you look around the room, you see the room is filled with, with people that look just like you and me. So it's clear that we've had advantages. Uh, we may not have... Uh, been explicit about it, but implicitly we've had advantages and we've got to bring others along with us too. Ed, you've mentioned the numbers a couple of times. How do you measure success? Uh, how will you know when you've achieved what you need to achieve? And do, is it basically based on numbers? It's, it's not based on numbers, uh, David, but one of the things that I know within Delta and as well as within the corporate community is when you're transparent and you're held accountable, things get done. You know, people pay attention, and we never want this to be seen as a quota system or or lowering the bar, as as one would, might say. Uh, this is about ownership and accountability, and being able to measure the the success that we're having. So numbers are it, it's it's an outcome. It's not not the not the driving force. But when we do see that gap closed, and in the memo you referenced, 
I've committed to close that gap in half over the next five years. So it's not a lot of time to make some pretty good difference. Uh, that will be one measure of success. But when I hear from our, our black community within Delta that the opportunities, the discussion, the sense of, of, of belonging and opportunity is greater than it was, that will tell me that we've really made that difference. When you talk about closing that gap, for those who haven't had the opportunity to read this memo, and I recommend it to people, uh, you disaggregate those numbers as well. You have the overall population of the Delta employees, but then you have management and then you have a smaller group at the very top. Are you committed to closing that gap across the entire set of different groups? Yeah, yes, I am, David. Um, in total, we have about 40% of our, our team are people of color. Uh, about 30% in the, in the low 30s are actually uh, in the leadership ranks of the company, more broadly speaking, from frontline leaders on up, are people of color. And about 18% of our officers are people of color. But when you figure out what the, the black component, the African-American component of that, that same uh, population skill set is, half of our people of color are black, but only a third of our top leaders are black. So you can see that there's been, even within the, the designation of people of color, there's been some inequity and imbalance there. And that's what we've got to focus on, how we can do better. That was Ed Bastian, CEO of Delta Airlines. Coming up, Tesla underwhelmed with its battery day, and the wheels started to come off at Nikola as its chairman stepped down. We talked with Joseph Spack of RBC Capital Markets about the tech side of autos. That's next on Wall Street Week on Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. In the great tradition of startups, uh, we started Apple because we wanted the product ourselves. There is one person or two people who are both the creator and the market so that they know the marketing requirements intuitively because they're the market themselves. So gradually we were pulled into business. It wasn't, we didn't start out to build a large company. We started out to build a few dozen computers for us and our friends. That was Apple co-founder Steve Jobs back in 1991, talking about how he came to create computers for the masses. This week, another high-tech entrepreneur who dropped out of college made news, but of a very different sort. Trevor Milton didn't come up with his one big idea right away. He tried an alarm sales company, an online classified website, and an energy storage company before fastening on his one true passion, making big trucks with zero emissions. He called it Nikola, after Nikola Tesla, who basically invented alternating current. Starting only five years ago, Milton built his company rapidly, taking it public just last June and seeing its market cap briefly exceed that of Ford Motor Company. But then, like Icarus, maybe he climbed too close to the sun. He made a big deal for GM to buy 11% of his company, which triggered the short seller Hindenburg Research to call it all, quote, an intricate fraud built on dozens of lies including a claim Nikola really was nothing more than a licensee and packager, which Mr. Milton vigorously denies. Here's the important thing to know. We've already built the Badger from the ground up ourselves, so everything in it is owned by Nikola. What we decided to do is leverage com uh, common parts with GM. I I'll tell you, for those who don't know, General Motors has the best purchasing power pretty much in the world. They, their parts are cheaper than, when I say cheaper, they mean they pay less for their parts than anyone else in the world, pretty much with the exception of maybe Volkswagen. So if you think about that, being able to leverage all their parts, 
we can commonize things. So like a window regulator or an inverter. I mean, why, why spend $2,000 on an inverter if you can pay 400 bucks for it or $500 for it or whatever it is? That's the value you get with GM. It doesn't mean that, they're, that, we're, that we're not doing anything. It means we're commonizing parts and OEMs do this all the time. The SEC and Justice Department started investigations. The stock fell and Mr. Milton had to quit as chairman. We don't know where this will all end. Mr. Milton says he'll defend himself against what he calls false allegations. And GM insists it did all appropriate due diligence before it made the deal, leaving us all to wonder whether Mr. Milton will ultimately be proven to be the revolutionary innovator he claims to be, or an extremely good salesman whose marketing prowess got the better of him. Nikola's goals have caused it to be compared with Tesla, but there are some key differences between the two. We asked RBC Capital Markets Analyst Joseph Spack what exactly Nikola is trying to do. Yeah, Nikola is, um, you know, a little bit, I think, of a misunderstood story. Um, there's definitely a lot of noise around the name. I think the, the short report brought out um, a lot of issues, which, um, you know, I'm certainly not going to defend here. But I think that when you look at the crux of what Nikola was trying to do, they were trying to bring together a whole bunch of partners from the manufacturing side, from the fuel cell and battery side, and from the infrastructure side to be able to offer their customers a point A to B route that they can take over for them, um, make green and efficient with hydrogen fueling technology, uh, and be able to offer a fuel cell lease. Now, if you can build out a whole bunch of A to B back and forth routes, where you can get customers to sign up for that, slowly but surely, you can build out efficiently a hydrogen charging infrastructure network. And that helps solve the chicken and egg problem that exists with hydrogen. But clearly, um, you know, some of the issues that have been brought up and now the cloud that surrounds the company, I think is putting some of these partnerships and potentially customers at risk. And it, it, it does mean that the whole uh, idea or concept can fall apart. So we've heard in the past about the opportunities in hydrogen fuel cell for long haul, so to speak, and the big trucks going in long distances, that that might well make sense. So that's not a new thought. Uh, what is it that's new that Nikola brings to the party? Yeah, I think, um, I think first of all, you're right. I think, you know, battery electric vehicles um, for, for commercial trucks as it stands today with the current state of battery technology um, makes a little bit less sense for the longer range. Um, because of a number of issues, including recharge times, battery degradation, and just the weight of batteries. So fuel cell seems like, if it could get it to work, a more ideal solution. Um, the um, why now or why Nikola? Because I think what Nikola was trying to do was come up with more of a business model innovation. Again, what they're trying to accomplish with their customers, and they had this pilot program with Anheuser-Busch, which is um, you know, we will um, lease, we will sell you this fuel trucks lease that includes both the truck, all the fuel and the service and maintenance. And so they effectively, like I said, they take over that, that dedicated route, that A to B route for Anheuser-Busch. And if they know they could get a lot of throughput, um, a lot of density on that route, um, it, it sort of de-risks the infrastructure build needed for hydrogen because they can use the, pro the proceeds from the fuel cell lease to help build out the infrastructure. That was Joseph Spack of RBC Capital Markets. Coming up, we wrap up the week with our special contributor, Larry Summers. This is Wall Street Week on Bloomberg.
Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express, too. So, if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing. Member FINRA SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com disclosures slash high-yield account. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. Well, we had a week of growing uncertainty about the return of the virus, about whether we're going to get more fiscal stimulus, and about the looming election, with President Trump adding that we just might not go when he was told to go. He might not concede that election if it goes against him. The more uncertainty there is, the more that we need help from our special contributor, Larry Summers of Harvard. So, Larry, great to have you here. First of all, start with that election, because we have a lot of people now, the markets included, starting to be concerned about whether we're going to have some chaos after the election. Are you concerned? about that of course i'm concerned and there's a risk but my best guess is right now that we're going to know who won the election by 9 15 on election night because the returns are going to come in from florida and they're going to suggest that joe biden won florida and when that happens there's not going to be much question about the overall outcome so yes it certainly could go close it certainly could be terrible in a variety of ways But my best guess right now is that we're going to know before we go to sleep on Wednesday night, on Tuesday night, what the result of uh, the election uh, has been. I think things are moving uh, in that way. So, so, so Larry, let me ask a, a question that has some travesty to it. We all know that you basically are in favor of uh, former Vice President Biden getting elected. How much difference does it make? I mean, does the particular policies of a particular president at this point make that big a difference? Or are we facing bigger problems than that with, for example, a pandemic? Look, uh, there's a lot that's not in our control. Does the virus uh, mutate? How aggressive does China choose to be? What are the consequences of climate change? How much does artificial intelligence turn out to exacerbate uh, inequality? So it's a mistake to think that who the president is and what the policies are is the only thing that's going to determine how good the next four years are. That said, there is an enormous amount to be gained from a restoration of normality. Normality in the sense of comedy and decent relations with other countries. Normality in the sense of a president who seeks to bring Americans together rather than pit racial groups against each other. Normality in the sense of a president who respects uh, the law, who respects uh, scientific expertise, who values 
a competent civil service uh, in uh, government. There are a whole set of issues which go beyond and come logically before the issues where Republicans and Democrats have different views, where there will be a huge difference if things turn uh, in uh, this election. Differences between Democratic and Republican policy are well down in the list mm. in terms of what's at stake in this election. Uh, that's, I imagine, why John McCain's uh, widow endorsed uh, right. Joe Biden. That's why all kinds of former military figures who usually stay out of politics or tend to the Republican side right. have endorsed uh, Joe Biden. That's why people like uh, uh, Bill Crystal and the right. Lincoln Project, which is made up of really staunch Republicans, the kind who loved George right. W. Bush when Democrats were mm -hmm. very bothered by things he was doing, have endorsed uh, Joe Biden. Mm -hmm. I, I think there's a ton that's at stake yeah. uh, in normality. Right. And normality and reasonable process is that much more important given how much that we can't control that's coming down the road. At least we have to be competent and right. caring with respect to the things that are within our control. Larry, I want to pick up on one thing you referred to, which is climate, the issue of climate. We had a remarkable announcement out of President Xi in China this week basically saying we're going to get to carbon neutral by 2060. What did you make of that? Two things. Uh, one, that China is vying for global leadership. It is doing the kinds of things that the United States uh, once did, making forward-looking commitments in the, uh, in the hope that others will follow and trying to set the terms of the global debate. And so in many ways, the fact that they were making this kind of forward-looking uh, statement said more to me about our China policy than it did about our environmental policy. It said to me that China is not an issue for the defense budget. It is not even an issue just for the conduct of our diplomacy. But it is something on which we are going to have to organize our effort for domestic renewal if the United States is going to maintain the kind of position in the leadership in, of leadership in the world that most Americans, I believe, very much want the United States to have. It also pointed up to me the essential role of renewal of energy systems worldwide whether it's the discovery and implementation of better battery technologies, David, whether it's moves on carbon pricing, which I think are very, very uh, important, um, whatever the particular uh, steps uh, are, we are going to have to, as we renew our country's infrastructure, pay very close attention uh, to uh, energy uh, issues. There may be, there are a lot of things that I think are wrong and overdone in some of the Green New Deal uh, proposals, which seems to me go way beyond 
uh, climate change. Right. But we're certainly going to need a new deal on green issues and do things right. very differently. And that's one of the things right. that I hope will start to happen in the next several years. So, Larry, as you know, every week we like to finish the week with a lightning round of Larry Says. Let me start out by asking you, what was the biggest disappointment for you this week? The failure to failure to move forward on uh, stimulus uh, at all, and that stimulus is a low priority, but appointing a Supreme Court in the month before an election is a high priority. I have to say, as an economic policymaker, I worry that a president who makes a travesty of reasonable process with respect to the Supreme Court can hardly be counted on to respect the independence of the Fed uh, when it counts. So if that's a disappointment, what was encouraging for you this week? Even Mitch McConnell basically made clear that the president had gone way beyond the lines when he threatened to stay in office even if he lost uh, the election. The absolute clarity with which even the people who inexplicably to me have been loyal uh, to the president made it clear that if that happened, enough would be enough. Okay, and we had those two. Let's talk about what the biggest mistake was you saw made this week. Probably no, probably, uh, no, st- no, uh, no forward movement on, uh, stimu- on stimulus at a time when we hugely need an insurance policy against a double dip for the economy. The labor market is slowing down. Uh, Landlords are having much more difficulty um, paying uh, rents uh, to tenants are having much more difficulty paying rents uh, to uh, landlords. Firms are getting ready as they realize this is going to go on for a long time to pay off, um, uh, to lay off uh, workers. And above all, David, People are just wishing COVID was over yeah. and acting like it was, yeah. even when it isn't. And Those look at Europe. And look at Europe. Many look at Europe. Okay, many thanks exactly. now to special Wall Street Week contributor. He is, of course, Larry Summers. Finally, one more thought: the least dangerous branch. That's what Alexander Bickel called the federal judiciary. It doesn't have the power of the purse. It doesn't command any armies. This week, we lost the very embodiment of that least dangerous but all-important branch of our government. Ruth Bader Ginsburg stood barely over five feet tall. She weighed all of 100 pounds. Her stellar record in law school didn't give her a place in a powerful law firm for one reason. She was a woman. It was Ruth Bader Ginsburg who thought that the U.S. Constitution should treat every American equally regardless of gender. But in the end, she showed them all. She showed us all. Almost by herself, she changed the course of the law, particularly when it came to the role of women, something we continue to struggle with. And now, ironically, in her passing, she poses for us the most fundamental question about the role of the judiciary she so loved. For the very power of the least dangerous branch lies in the fact that it is not political. We don't elect our judges. They have no fixed terms. They are the keepers of principles rather than expediency. We are now in the midst of an intensely political fight over the branch of government that is not supposed to be political. 
And if in the end the Supreme Court is seen by us all as yet another expression simply of our extreme partisan politics, then does the Supreme Court, even our Supreme Court, have the same, not power, but authority that the framers intended it to have? That does it for this episode of Wall Street Week. I'm David Weston. This is Bloomberg. See you next week. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.